Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 24 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we have a lot on our plate for this show today, guys. This is going to be a very in-depth, highly analytical episode. We're really excited for the topics we're going to cover. We are going to talk about the latest in the ongoing border crisis on the southern border of the United States. We are going to talk about another white pill, courtesy of the Supreme Court. That is encouraging news for all of us. We're going to talk about the latest antics from the Never Trump crowd, that cesspool of Never Trumpers and pedophiles known as the Lincoln Project. And for our main topic, we are finally, I think for the first time on The Right Take, we are going to take aim at one of the premier punching bags for the right. And that is the young socialist from the Bronx slash Westchester County herself, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But before we begin, we first have to give a very big shout out, a sincere thank you to our friends, Kyle and Nathan, who have a great radio show in Ohio, a local radio show. And they hosted us Monday night for an hour, the two of us via Skype, to talk about everything, the political climate, biggest issues, where the right is right now, why it's failing, how it can win, the threat of critical race theory, the impact of public schools and teachers unions, and even the origin story of how Jacob and I first met and how the Right Take podcast got started. Huge shout out. So thank you guys. And you guys, our listeners, should definitely go pay them a visit at their Facebook page, The Troy Show. And we will include a link in the description below to that video where we were interviewed. And again, it was for an hour. It was a great time. And you should consider listening to other episodes of theirs as well and listen to more of their content. The Troy Show, Kyle and Nathan, thank you guys so much. And Kyle even mentioned, he he's a friend that I've known him for a few years now, pretty much since right after the 2016 election. We have met before, and uh, he has met Jacob as well. When he was last here in D.C. for the first uh, Trump march, which I believe was, what, November? Uh, feels like a lifetime ago, after the election. And Kyle mentioned he plans on making his way back to D.C. He's going to go on a trip back up to the swamp to come visit us, and we will most likely then do the sequel crossover where Kyle will be a guest on our show. And that's going to be a great, a great time for all involved. It's going to be fantastic. And I look forward very much to Kyle making that trip. Uh, speaking of trips that definitely need to be made and are of the utmost importance, Kamala Harris, the alleged vice president of the United States, has still not yet paid a visit to the border, but she is visiting countries that are the sources of illegal aliens, and they themselves are affected by the massive migrant crisis going on at our southern border right now. So, Jacob, what's the latest on what Kamala Harris is not doing to address this issue? So Kamala Harris did not visit the border first to talk to ICE, to talk to CBP, to find out what she can do, what the what President Biden can do to help out our border patrol agents. Rather, she decided to go to the root cause of the problem, which is Guatemala. And, uh, well, technically, that's the only one that she went to that was part of the root cause of the problem because she then went straight to Mexico City. She did not visit Honduras, and she did not visit El Salvador. Now, um, that's interesting. Why, why did she not visit Honduras and El Salvador? Well, it turns out the governments of Honduras and El Salvador aren't as pliable as the Biden administration would like them to be, or I, sh I should say uh, aren't as pliable as our State Department would, would like them to be, because anyone who follows the Biden administration closely knows that the State Department is really what runs things. Biden is just primarily a puppet. Kamala is just a pretty face to add to the puppet. And um, so that's why they didn't visit uh, Honduras, did not visit El Salvador. So the, the brother of the Honduran president recently got sentenced to life in prison in the United States. 
and he his uh, I would should say his uh, comrades in drug trafficking implicated the president of Honduras. So for that, that's one of the reasons why the Biden administration doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And um, the president of El Salvador is actually the youngest president. He's the youngest head of state in the world right now, except I think Kim Jong-un is actually younger. Uh, this guy is 39 years old. He's, uh, he's on the older scale of millennials. And um, he's he got elected. He's extremely he's widely popular in El Salvador. He's got like 90 percent of 90 percent approval rating in the country. So you would think he would be somebody that the Biden administration would want to work with, considering he's so popular. I mean, if anybody is a voice of the people, it would be this guy. But because he decided to dismiss, I believe it was five justices of their Supreme Court and their attorney general in early May, the Biden administration decided to have nothing to do with him. Now, that's key because one of the things that the Biden administration is pushing in Central America is cutting down on corruption. And this is a, f a favorite catchphrase. This is what our State Department does in Eastern Europe. We claim that we want to fight corruption, so we support politicians who claim that they're going to fight corruption. We support prosecutors in those countries that claim they want to fight uh, corruption. And then our State Department meddles in those countries' affairs, in those uh, countries' elections. And, of course, screws up their economy, screws up their politics, and uh, the same thing that we accused Russia of doing during the Trump administration. Basically, all they do is they install people that are supportive of their government. That's exactly what Joe Biden did when he got that Ukrainian prosecutor fired because he was about to uncover some scandals with Hunter Biden and that energy company Burisma. He, they just marketed it as, oh, he's corrupt. He needs to go because he's corrupt, which yes, means correct. He, he's going to investigate my dirty laundry. Now, uh, I haven't looked into it too closely, but the president of Honduras claims that the the charges against his brother were are completely fake and that the, the actual drug traffickers are the ones who are trying to frame him and his brother and that the State Department, because they don't agree with his policies in Honduras, that they're believing the actual drug traffickers. Um, and of course, he, he uses uh, State Department data to back that up by showing that under his administration, there have been a lot more drug runners caught, and the, the drug trafficking through um, Honduras has actually gone down under his administration, which is true. So, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to dig – we're not going to dig too closely into that. But that's the reason why uh, Harris did not visit either of those two countries, even though it's all three countries that are contributing to the mass immigration into our country. She only went to Guatemala, and even in Guatemala, she wasn't exactly well-received as soon as she – it was escorted as, as she was greeted by, I guess, their their version of the Praetorian Guard in Guatemala. She was immediately met by a couple of dozen uh, protesters who were holding up signs that said Trump won. And they were protesting her and being there saying Kamala, go home, Trump won, that kind of thing. So that was pretty interesting. And also sounds like Guatemala really is sending their best. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, those people actually stayed there. So it's probably the exact opposite. They're keeping their best there who actually understand the way things are going. But the president of Guatemala and the president of Mexico, um, um, you have to remind me of his name again. He's Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, yes, a.k.a. Um, AMLO. Lopez Obrador, yeah, AMLO. He, uh, they both have blamed the Biden administration for the continual surge in immigrants. And obviously the, the northern triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, don't like it because it's bleeding brain drain from their country. And Mexico, of course, doesn't like it because it's causing all of these hundreds of thousands of migrants to trek across their country. And their people are now expected to take care of the, or help these people out along the way as they're going through their country. And it's also creating a huge boon for the cartels because the cartels are now – not only are they making money from drug trafficking, but they're also able to make money through human trafficking. They're able to – a lot of these people are mortgaging their homes. They're going into massive debt. Many of them are only worth maybe two to five hundred dollars. That's all they're all they're worth. Like that's their total. If they sold everything they had, that's all that they would be worth is two to five hundred dollars. But yet they're going into debt by numbers like ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars, and it's all in the hopes that once they get to America, they'll eventually be able to pay that 
debt back to the cartels who are helping them get through Mexico. And of course, what that means is even if they're deported, because they're now $20,000 in debt and they have no way to pay that money back when they get back to Honduras, they're going to keep trying to come across the border. They're never going to stop because if they go back and they just decide to forget that debt, well, the cartels know where they live. They know where their family lives. So it's going to be really bad news for them and their families if they just decide to default on their debts to the cartels. Kamala and the left, of course, aren't addressing any of this stuff. They're instead blaming the United States for this crisis because we intervened in those countries decades ago as if that somehow had anything to do with the current you know, the, the current migration crisis that they're experiencing. But and when she was questioned about why she's not going to the border, she, or she made up, you know, she just said, well, I'm, I'm down here because I want to handle the root causes. And if you watch her, her press conferences, it, it's kind of like if you get someone who's a, a, get a sophomore, let's say a college freshman or a college sophomore who's never gonna, given a public speech before, and you put them up in speech class uh, in front of the class, it's kind of how she gets. Like she's very out of her element. She's very nervous. It's very obvious that, uh, that, she, was, uh, that she dropped out early in the Democratic primary just because she's, she's not that good at she's it. She's never been a good public speaker. She's not likable. She's not charismatic. She's not funny. She's not charming. That's a recurring thing. She very much has this kind of the Hillary Clinton uh, approach of if I'm faced with a tough question and I don't have a witty response, I'm just going to laugh like this cackle, like, <laughs> like this, this little cackle like that she is – a way to try to defuse the situation, but it's also it's done in an intimidating way to any journalist who dares ask a wrong question. Like, mm -hmm. don't you dare try to follow up or press me on that question again. Well, it's because she's not used to being challenged because as a woman of color, you know, she's she's supposed to be given a pass on this stuff. She shouldn't be criticized because it's racist to criticize her. Affirmative action, basically. Right. And she really is the very first affirmative action vice president that we've ever had, because remember, Biden boxed himself in a corner by promising to pick a woman. His black constituents wanted him to pick a black woman, and he was going to pick the representative from California who has – Karen Bass. Karen Bass, who, but when it came out that she had openly endorsed Marxism in the past, he had to back off from that. And then he picked Kamala Harris, who is the next best thing to a black woman in their minds, uh, who, who pretends that she's black. But uh, it, uh, just one last thing on this, and then we'll move on. But one um, really bizarre thing happened in Mexico City when she was given a press conference. This woman who claimed to be part of Univision – stood up and said, thank you, Madam Vice President. For me, it's an honor because I actually got to vote for the first time as a naturalized citizen, and I voted for you. And this is a journalist saying this right before she's going to ask her a question, which is weird in and of itself. If you're a journalist asking a presidential candidate a question, why are you telling them that you voted for him? Just flattering them and butter buttering them up. But the interesting thing is um, Univision's president, after this was over with, he put out a uh, tweet and said, quote, in Mexico, an individual who has no association with Univision claimed to be a reporter for Unidoticias in order to ask Vice President Kamala Harris a question and to compliment Kamala Harris. Let it be clear to everyone that Miss Maria Fernanda Reyes is not part of this media organization. So wait, so like literal fake news, like fake, fake news. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Here? So somehow she had journalistic credentials as part of Univision. But the president of Univision came out and said, this woman has no affiliation with Univision. And, th and that's not just like, a, oh, she's no longer with us. We fired her. That's like a no. She never was with us. Yeah. She never worked. Wait, so what? So this woman snuck into a press conference with the vice president of the United States? And in the uh, before she asked her question, she flattered Kamala Harris and she said, it's an honor because I actually got to vote for the first time in the United States as a naturalized citizen, and I voted for you. She didn't say I voted for Joe Biden or for your ticket. She said That's I voted right. for you. The real president you don't, at this but point, you the don't, shadow president. You don't vote for a vice president, no. which is, makes me wonder. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Kinda. I'm, still, I'm still baffled. Like, So this woman was not a reporter at all, 
she had like fake credentials or something. If like, she was a reporter, she wasn't a reporter with Univision. Then why lie about your? No, this this opens up so many questions. Like, what was this? Just some loony who literally got like forged press credentials and successfully snuck into a conference with the vice president of the United States. You have any idea, like, an, a potential assassin could take advantage of that kind of lapse in security? Like, well, I mean, what, I'm what's sure going on here? I'm sure they're checked for, for weapons, obviously, go through metal detectors and everything before they go in. But it's just kind of weird that she would flatter the vice president, say that she voted for the vice president, and she's not a part of the news outlet that she claims to be part of. So, I, I don't know. Some people have, have uh, been speculating that maybe Harris had her planted— that that was Harris herself who got that got her in there, so she she could, needed that ego boost because she's not been getting boost, it as so. lately. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I can, know. That's just speculation. I don't know. But she one thing's for certain: she's not part of Univision. So that's that's a, I don't know. It's a good question. But um, you know, despite the fact that we've got to put up with uh, with Kamala Harris as our vice president and being in charge of border security and immigration, or at least being the one appointed by the president to take care of that. We do have some good news out of the Supreme Court. Uh, you told me about this earlier. I wasn't even. I didn't even wasn't even paying attention when this news broke. Yeah, this is another big deal. We previously reported on another good ruling from Supreme Court with regards to immigration, and now we've got another good ruling from the Supreme Court once again in a 9-0 decision, unanimous decision. On Monday, I wrote an article for this at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. All nine justices determined that illegal aliens who have been given temporary protected status, or TPS, are not eligible to receive green cards, which would have given them permanent residency. Justice Elena Kagan, one of the leftists on the court, wrote the opinion and said, quote, any TPS recipient who entered the United States unlawfully is not eligible merely by dint of his TPS. The case was first brought to the Supreme Court as a result of one illegal alien, Jose Sanchez, who came to the U.S. illegally from El Salvador in 1997. He was provided TPS in 2001. And subsequently, because the TPS status for El Salvador was repeatedly extended, he was able to stay in the United States for that entire time. In 2014, 2014, that's 13 years after he was given TPS and 17 years after he first came to the United States, he applied for a green card with USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which denied his application for the green card on the basis of the fact that he came here illegally. So he then sued. And in a federal court, he initially did succeed in having that decision overturned before the Third Circuit Court of Appeals sided with USCIS and determined that he was not eligible. And the Supreme Court echoed the Third Circuit Court's decision and effectively ended the case. So that is another really big deal. A, obviously it's a win for American workers and American citizens in general who want to be able to have a fighting chance against this cheap labor known as illegal aliens. And also, again, the fact that it is a 9-0 decision. You almost never see that anymore, but this is proof. Now, the Supreme Court, even with a few lefties on there appointed by Obama, is still not yet a totally partisan body at this point. Yeah, you still have the divides. You have the conservative versus the liberal sides. But it still, every now and then, is able to put all that nonsense aside and judge the law based on what the law itself says. And that obviously is a good thing. And it bodes well for the future of the court, especially after President Trump confirmed three justices to give it a overwhelming 6-3-5-4 majority if you don't count Justice Roberts, who's arguably not conservative, which bodes well for upcoming major decisions like the Roe v. Wade case. So this is good news, and we should definitely take comfort in any good news that comes out during these next four years. Yeah, and a lot of people, they they have looked at the Supreme Court as being a partisan body, whether they're on the left or the right. And the left, of course, got it started. They kicked the ball rolling in the 50s and 60s with the activists with the the, uh, the Warren Court. And, um, of course, Roe v. Wade was the, the culmination of all that. 
But a lot of even people on the right, they've moved, they've kind of just accepted that the Supreme Court is political. And so anytime Justice Roberts or one of the, the so-called conservative justices rules against what the majority of Republicans want, they immediately start attacking that justice as being a rhino, being a turncoat. But it's like, wait a minute. It, they're not supposed to be Republicans. Like that's not the point of being on the Supreme Court. Even if they were appointed by Republicans, they're supposed to interpret laws based on the comp, on the Constitution. And in this case, you would need a law from Congress that would give temporary protected status immigrants the ability to get green cards. And we haven't had a law passed by Congress that gives them the ability to do that. So obviously, uh, someone with TPS, it just means they can't be deported. That doesn't mean that they are automatically legalized or they're treated as if they entered the country legally. So this is one thing that I think people need to, especially people on the right, because this is one of the things that the right is fighting for. It's not just so we can have a Supreme Court that's a Republican partisan court. It's so we can have a Supreme Court that actually interprets laws based on the Constitution. So if there's an issue, uh, here's an example. Here's one example is uh, with the coronavirus lockdowns. So the state comes out and says you can't attend church service in this particular situation because of the coronavirus and you have to meet, I don't know, you have to meet outdoors. You take that to court and say, well, this violates my religious liberty. The court then, they can look back at precedent and say, no, it doesn't because we do have precedence with this. Back when yellow fever and other things broke out, the local governments were able to take extraordinary measures to limit the spread of these diseases. It, it trumps the First Amendment. And uh, in that case, the courts are right when they rule that way. And Republicans should just blow up and say, oh, well, they're, they're being tyrannical. And of course, obviously, that matters situation by situation. Like recently, the court ruled against California for curtailing re religious liberty because the coronavirus situation at the time didn't warrant that kind of drastic response. But I think so many times Republicans, like Democrats, will just assume that if someone was appointed like Kagan, if they're appointed by a Democrat, that they're automatically going to rule in favor of illegal immigrants all the time. And uh, that's just not the case. I mean, they even the liberals, they came of age during the latter half of the 20th century. They're still more in the J.F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson vein of liberalism, of loose construction of the Constitution. They haven't gone full-fledged, let's just ignore the Constitution in the service of justice. Yeah, fighting for justice is a really important thing. You know, it's obviously the, the idea of it is a good one, but unfortunately that very phrase has been hijacked by so many, mostly on the left, who have just perverted it into basically meaning uh, fighting for whatever we support. That's justice. And nowhere is that more evident than that group of far-left Democrats known as the Lincoln Project. When they're not busy being pedophiles, they're constantly spouting anti-Trump rhetoric and outright revisionist history. And such is the subject of their latest video posted on June 4th titled The Real Antifa. Who is Antifa? They stormed the beaches of Normandy, parachuted into the French countryside and gave their lives to face down and fight back against fascism. They took down Nazi machine gun nests, tore apart the Third Reich's strongholds, liberated concentration camps, liberated France, Italy, Belgium, Holland. Anywhere Antifa saw fascism, they fearlessly and relentlessly annihilated it. Fascism was defeated because of patriots like these, proud Americans who knew that the fight against fascists was not simply a battle between opposing nations. It was a war against inhumanity. A war that isn't nice, but cannot be lost. A war we still fight today. Anti-fascism, it's not a cable news talking point. It's an American ideal that should be memorialized because it was paid for 
in blood. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, so first off, we have the, at the very end, again, this is a video, we'll post the link to this in the description, at the very end there where it says, we're still fighting fascism today. They show clips of Trump supporters, like a Trump rally, and then of Trump himself speaking on January 6th, and then they proceed to show, now again, most of it is historical footage of World War II, but they do show footage. They literally show footage of these marchers from modern times, all clad in black, carrying the Antifa flag, marching through the streets. They literally are promoting, and this is a talking point you have heard from the left. The left has said, oh, anti-fascism was World War II, like, you know, fighting Nazis. Like, they, the one of the few times when Antifa will try to appeal to patriotism, because otherwise they talk about how much they hate the United States, they try to make themselves seem comparable to the soldiers who stormed in Normandy. And it's, I mean, it's laughable, it's ridiculous, but I find this, uh, for one thing, I find this really weird considering Trump's no longer in office. So what, what is the point of their even continued existence at this point? He's not in office. Why are they continuing to promote this stuff? Other than the only thing I can think of is they are just blatantly apologizing for what can only be described as a domestic terrorist organization. And to follow along with Black Lives Matter is a far left, technically by classification, it's an anarcho-communist terrorist organization that is responsible for burning down cities, smashing and destroying hundreds of businesses, killing dozens of people last year in the race riots. And these retards want to spend their spare time and their money and their donors' precious money, again, when they're not grooming little children, on promoting a terrorist organization and apologizing for them. And I do think it's really funny. One last thing I'll point out is that the comments are overwhelmingly negative. The comments are over all the highest rated comments are going up against them saying, uh, among others, so just making up history as we go, question mark. Uh, these men would never burn down their own cities. This is a disgrace. Very true. Stalin is smiling from the grave. <laughs> it's so nice that the Lincoln Project could take a break from grooming minors to make this work of utter fiction. Yep. This is, and again, it shows people know this is what happens when they don't, and this video was posted a few days ago, so they'll probably get on this quick. This is what happens when Lincoln Project doesn't curate their responses. On Twitter and on social media, they block, they mass block anybody who criticizes them. They sometimes limit responses to only their followers and supporters. They are not nearly as popular or well-liked as they make themselves out to be. Well, this goes back to what I was talking about, how the leftists view the Supreme Court in that they are willing to fight. They, their attitude toward the Supreme Court is it doesn't matter if a ruling would contravene the Constitution. You need to rule a certain way if it's in the cause of justice. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if we can't get the votes together to get rid of the filibuster and pass the laws that we want. If something goes before the Supreme Court, like in the TPS case, the Supreme Court needs to rule on the side of justice, even if it throws out the Constitution. In the case of World War II, and this really goes back to their their vision of World War II, uh, most of what leftist legal interpretation is based on is this false notion that the United States fought World War II in order to defeat fascism. It's based on the idea that the United States saw fascism was on the rise, so we decided to declare war on fascism and snuff it out wherever it popped up its ugly head. But the thing is, fascism started, it came into existence in the 1920s under Mussolini in Italy. The United States did not declare war on Mussolini's Italy. If we were in the business of smashing fascism, we would have destroyed Italy before the Great Depression hit. Germany became fascist in the mold of Mussolini's Italy, of course, a lot more radical. And the United States did not declare war on Germany. We did not go and snuff out fascism before World War II started. In fact, you know when we, why we declared war on Germany? Well, it's because we were kind of bombed out of nowhere on December 7, 1941 by Japan, which was aligned with Germany and Italy. They formed the Axis powers, 
And subsequently, of course, we declared war on Japan and then Germany followed up by declaring war on us. Correct. We declared war on Germany because they declared war on us first. It was a defensive action. We didn't go on offense to go snuff out fascism. Defeating fascism was the same as defeating, I believe it was Hirohito. He was the emperor of yes. Japan. It, imperialism is basically if Japan. And you could argue you know, the exact tenets of whether or not it was fascist or not. But Japan fundamentally was imperialist at the time. Yes. And that would be like saying that we fought in Japan to defeat imperialism. No, we didn't care. It's definitely not. Certainly, as indicated by our actions in Latin America in the 1980s, we did not defeat right, imperialism yeah. at all. But we didn't. We didn't care if that they were uh, an imperial power. That that wasn't what bothered us. What bothered us is that they bombed Pearl Harbor. They kind of killed 3,000 of our people. Which, yes. Yeah. And just <laughs> like mean, you, you don't not go to war at that point. At that point, even the anti-war like America First Committee and Charles Lindbergh and all them, even they were like, okay, yes, let's let's go bomb these sons of bitches. Let's get rid of them. Exactly. Yeah. But but if you go if you follow the Lincoln Project's mentality on this, then then the only reason that the United States military exists is to go slay monsters around the world. So if we see a country that we can claim as fascist, we have an obligation to go do to them what we did to Hitler's Germany. And like you pointed out in the video when they talk about how our soldiers, our brave soldiers went over there and crushed fascism, then they show images of Donald Trump and his supporters. You asked why are they still making this video about Trump when he's out of office? They're still making this video because we're still breathing. That's the reason they're making this video. Trump supporters are still alive. We haven't all we didn't all kick the bucket when he left office. So as long as Trump supporters are alive, they're going to continue to equate his supporters with fascists and try to complete the triangle and say, look, America defeated fascism in World War Two. And now we have fascism today in our own country through Donald Trump and his supporters, you know, carrying out violence against them like Antifa does is justified because our grandparents and great-grandparents carried out violence against the fascists in Germany in the 1940s. And that's how you justify street violence, by saying, look, we fought fascism in Germany, so it's okay for people dressed in black to get out in the streets and be violent against Trump supporters. Smash businesses, burn buildings, beat people in the streets. Yeah, never mind that that's exactly – that's a fundamental part of how fascism first came to rise in Germany because the original agitators – were the, the black shirts, the communists, who formed street mobs that roamed the streets of Germany and smashed businesses and harassed German citizens. And the authorities, the, the Weimar Republic, this is what people talk about frequently, Weimar Germany, the, the government was so weak, they were not capable of enforcing the law and stopping these mobs. So then a group called the brown shirts, you know, the foot soldiers of the Nazi party, came forward and said, hey, okay, we'll take the fight directly to these dirty commies for you and we'll protect you. And they, they were big street brawls, you know. And so, of course, in 1930s Germany, they were like, oh, wow, thank you, brown shirts. You know, what's your party? The National Socialists? All right, we'll reward you guys and give you political power. And that's kind of how it started because these agitators, these black bloc anarcho-communist terrorists are, out, are allowed to roam free and beat people in the streets and nobody will do anything about it. But according to the Lincoln Project, these people are – they're freedom fighters. You know, they're these oh, people yeah. in Portland, Oregon these who people, are trying to burn federal agents alive in the courthouse. They're, they're fighting for freedom. They're, they're, wearing all, they're wearing all black and they got these big flags with the, you know, the big A anarchy symbol on them. Like, yeah, those are freedom fighters. The greatest generation came right back to America to tear down statues and destroy historic monuments. But you mentioned one of the comments said that Stalin is smiling from his grave right now in, the, in that uh, video. Yep. But this is actually – this was the actual view of a lot of Americans who were far left. They they viewed World War II as a fight to, to snuff out fascism. They didn't see it as a war for nationalism. Most American soldiers, they went to war because they were fighting for their country against Germany who had declared war on us and who was allied with the nation that attacked us. Right. But Howard Zinn was actually a World War II veteran. He fought for his country. 
But in his mind, he, and he wasn't, wasn't a turncoat or something. No, no. Well, you got to remember in his mind, he wasn't fighting for nationalism. He wasn't fighting for America. He was fighting against he was fighting against fascism. He was fighting for the same reasons that the Soviets were fighting. So in his mind, he, he was going to give his all in the fight against fascism. And he, he, of course, ended up writing the most influential history in the entire United States, the people's history of the United States, which influences our university and uh, secondary education to this day. But this idea isn't new. Like this idea among the, the Marxists, among the Soviet sympathizers in America's ranks during World War II, this is what they thought they were fighting for was to destroy fascism, destroy authoritarianism. Whereas the majority of Americans at the time saw it as a war for national survival and a war uh, to basically for the English speaking peoples of the world to avoid domination by by Germany. Also, but, also, admittedly, a war of retribution because obviously we were attacked. Yes, of course, of course, a war, a war of retribution, kind of the same way that we're fighting against the war on terror. Yeah, yes. Well, moving on to our main topic today, of course, this is something that we promised you all on our social media last night. We promised that we were going to well, actually say last night. This is going to be posted Thursday morning. We promised it Tuesday evening because we but our main topic today is, as you mentioned in the preview, the the number one enemy of the right. Not Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris, not Barack Obama, not even George Soros. No, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is the number one enemy of mainstream conservatism, which is kind of odd considering she's a former bartender who never held political office. She didn't even run for city council in New York City before going straight from bartending to the U.S. Congress. She literally only really became such a prominent star because she did oust like a 10-term incumbent, Joe Crowley, who was I think like the third highest ranking Democrat in the House, which was a big deal. I mean when you oust a member of leadership, it's kind of like when – um. On the Republican side, Eric Cantor was defeated in, I think, the 2014 midterm primary by uh, Dave Bratt. Like, it was kind of similar there, unfortunately. Bratt went on to lose the general election uh, in his seat in Virginia a few years later. But she ousted an incumbent major leader of the House Democratic Party in 2018. So it was a big upset. It was a big challenge to the establishment. And among other things, yeah, she has a very strong social media game. She needs to be said she's on the younger side. She's admittedly pretty good looking. She's got a lot of things going for her. So she kind of came out of nowhere, just burst onto the scene like the superstar. And I think to a certain extent, certainly the Democratic Party, but also the right, didn't know what to do with her. They don't know how to handle someone like this. Yeah, Crowley was actually second in line to be Speaker of the House after Pelosi moved out of the way. He was the one that was that they figured would take the mantle after she left, after she retired. So that was kind of a big deal. But still, the obsession that Fox News seemed to have with her after she was elected, which is kind of weird. And uh, someone – I don't remember who it was, but someone with National Review wrote a listicle about why it is that the right seems so obsessed with AOC. Some of the things he mentioned was you need a villain in politics. You need someone that can personify the other side's political ideas. And since AOC was the most outspoken and, of course, arguably the most self-identified fringe, she made a good target to personify everything that Republicans hated about Democrats. She will say a lot of the radical views that Pelosi – and more established Democrats would rather keep to the side. Like she, on a, she started the campaign to abolish ICE. She was one of the key players in defund the police, which ideas of that have now arguably gone mainstream on the left. And for a while, Pelosi and others would go, "Shh, no, 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 stop! Don't, don't say that. You're not supposed to say that." But she would <laughs> yeah. say it unapologetically to the point that it is now abolish ICE is a mainstream Democratic position and defund the police. 
definitely faced some backlash in 2020 in the aftermath of the 2020 elections when the Democrats did lose seats in the House of Representatives. But it's not going away just yet. It is still very much kind of gaining traction at local levels in individual cities and districts and whatnot. So she has whatever it is, however she does it, whatever her tax are, she's clearly got some sway over this party. One of the other points that he brought out was that she's a self-described, like Bernie, she's a self-described democratic socialist. And for years now, Republicans have been accusing Democrats of being socialist. And for people who are 45 to 50 and up, this kind of, he said, this was, these were his words. He said, again, I, his name, uh, it was someone in National Review, but his, his words were, this brings back, uh, Republicans, older Republicans back to their quote unquote happy place. Because back in the in the golden era of Republican domination in the 80s and 90s, Republicans were able to hit Democrats for being soft on communism. And of course, once communism was was thoroughly defeated, they weren't able to do that anymore. So the 90s and 2000s, they then had to find a new new punching bag. And of course, that was radical Islam after 9-11. And so he's uh, he was making the argument that because she's a self-described Democratic socialist, she's an easy target, for especially for older Republicans who want to paint Democrats as socialists. She's a literally a card carrying member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Right, right. So she's a very easy target on that. But what's interesting is this uh, – I believe it was this past week. Yes, it was this past week. So one of the one of AOC's uh, number one criticisms of Trump, and this is what we're going to talk about why this is once we do this, uh, get further into this deep dive on AOC. But uh, one of her number one criticisms of the Trump administration was the way they handled Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico and, of course, cost thousands of lives, did uh, untold hundreds of millions. Uh, I don't know the exact total. It was like it was lots and lots of money and damages. And one of her criticisms is the, the federal response to Hurricane Maria. Well, she recently – she must have posted a picture of her – yeah, she, I remember seeing the picture. She posted a picture of what she claimed was her grandmother's house. Her abuela's house. Yeah, her uh, la casa de su abuela. And it was it looked pretty run down, but it wasn't terrible. I mean like – It wasn't I've, destroyed. It wasn't raised to the ground. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've lived in worse conditions than that myself <laughs> so, around D.C., so it's not exactly – yeah, I mean, they, it was pretty bad, but I've seen – I've lived in worse and she she blamed Trump and his response to that and claimed that her own family is suffering the consequences. And I th think her, she said her grandfather died in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. And, of course, it's all Trump's fault. Trump's, Trump is to blame for this. So this is uh, uh, this is from The Spectator. And this is written by someone named Cockburn. Uh, apparently, it's an alias or they just decided to leave their last name. But I'm just going to dive into this article about this situation. So uh, he writes, on Wednesday, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez issued an anguished tweet about the living conditions of her grandmother in Puerto Rico, whose home has apparently been rather worse for, fear, for wear since Hurricane Maria passed through four years ago. According to AOC, it is naturally all Trump's fault, as he didn't send $20 billion in aid quickly enough. And so just like that, Puerto Rico is doomed to perpetual poverty and can never rebuild. In response, Matt Walsh, a Daily Wire podcast host, launched a hasty GoFundMe campaign to help AOC's beleaguered forebear. The fund swiftly raised more than $100,000 before skidding to a halt on Saturday, which, of course, was the plan all along. AOC's, AOC seems to think that it is worth $104,153 of her abuela's money to express that she doesn't want money from the likes of us, Walsh said. Abuela could have accepted the money and donated it to charity, but it seems AOC preferred to insult the 5,800 people who donated, end of quote. Doesn't this strike anyone besides Cockburn as deeply pathetic? The first rule of online arguments is do not feed the troll. AOC thrives on attention and the right just gave her even more of it. It's not like any of this is going to make AOC embarrassed about her rhetoric. Three years on Twitter and Twitch have made it obvious AOC is beyond embarrassment. To lend the whole thing an even sillier tone, 
Candace Owens suggested it might be illegal for AOC to decline the faux concern trolling of her opponents. Walsh and his fellow travelers ought to be grateful that Owens is entirely wrong. For them, the only thing more embarrassing than AOC declining their phony charity would be for her accepting it. Imagine if she had. AOC's family would be $100,000 richer and duped Republicans would be poorer. In return, they'd have, what, smug moral satisfaction that Republicans are charitable to people they dislike and Democrats aren't? Hundreds of people are facing personal ruin for fringe roles in the January 6th Capitol incident, and most won't receive a cent in donations. Meanwhile, liberals all the way up to Kamala Harris donated money last summer to get violent rioters out of jail. Across the country, conservatives lose their jobs and livelihoods for meager political offenses like old tweets, awkward Facebook posts, or donating to the wrong ballot measure. Few of them benefit from crowdsourced conservative largesse. The tiff over AOC's abuela exposes the embarrassing shortcomings of what might be called own the libs conservatism. In place of actual ideological achievements, this fake conservatism believes it wins huge victories through meaningless stunts like driving gas-guzzling cars, eating Chick-fil-A, oblivious to the fact that CFA caved to liberals years ago, or buying up every single Dr. Seuss book on eBay. For the better part of a week, the most visible conservative cause has been landing some dumb high school own on a high-profile congresswoman. It didn't achieve anything or convince anyone, but it made participants feel pleased with themselves for a while. Yeah, what this really comes down to is like some people were pointing out, like supporters of Matt Walsh and others were saying on social media, oh, this exposes what a hypocrite she is. She doesn't care about her own grandmother, so a conservative had to raise money to help her. And I'm like, okay, there is a way to make that point that she posted about her grandmother's suffering and apparently made no effort to to help her, whether through her own money, donating her congressional salary, or trying to propose an amendment or something, something or other, you could make that point. You absolutely could make that point without actually creating the GoFundMe. That was going that far was just setting yourself up for failure. And what I think happened here, there's even kind of confusion over where all this money came from because suddenly over 100,000. I don't believe for a second it was a bunch of conservatives who genuinely want to contribute to owning AOC. I think what happened here is. You had a bunch of leftists who, and fans of AOC who took advantage of this and said, oh, wow, these idiot conservatives just gave us an avenue to donate to her grandmother. Let's all donate. And they all – and leftists contributed and pitched in. I think that's what happened. Again, we don't know for certain. We don't know who donated. But I did see a screenshot showing that allegedly the top donation, which I think was about $2,000 from a single person, came from someone who under the username Trump lost. So, like, it, it could very well have been just, like, the, the conservatives got doubly duped. But the point here, this ties into what you and I were talking about this off the air as we were prepping for the show. I said, this is the problem. You said this is why the right is constantly losing. When the left owns the right, as it were, they burn down your businesses. They get you fired from your job. They get you canceled. They get you doxxed. They get you harassed. They, get you, they beat you in the streets. Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Or they get you thrown in jail for, you know, taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office on January 6th. And then they get to beat you in your cell. Exact guards. Yeah, guard, you know, guards who talk about hating white people and hating Trump beat you. Whereas when the right owns a liberal, they give them $100,000. <laughs> like, th that says all you need to know right there. We're so done. We are already, we lost a long time ago at this rate. Yeah, this, this is... This is just pure insanity. And like you said, yeah, I'm sure a lot of lefties decided to, to donate to that as well. But let's be honest. How many lefties actually care about AOC's poor abuela? Very few of them. I mean, yeah, somebody trolled, like you said, the top donor was someone who wrote Trump lost, which is pretty funny. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty counter own of the cons who are trying to own the lib. But the thing is, Matt Walsh doesn't really have any self-awareness for this because after this is over with, after GoFundMe stops the donation, 
He comes out and says this is very insulting for AOC to reject the donations of 5,300 people. But if he thinks that her grandmother was actually living in squalor and actually living in poverty because of Hurricane Maria, which this is this is it's been years since Hurricane Maria hit. If he really thinks that AOC has allowed her grandmother to live in poverty since then and has not helped her out, he's a fool. There's no way that AOC would have let her grandmother live in poverty. She's just posting these pictures. Her grandmother probably doesn't even live in that house. She's just posting these pictures for, to make political points against the right. And the reason she's doing this is, as we're going to get into, it's all surrounding Puerto Rico. It's all got to do with Puerto Rico and her perception of how Americans view Puerto Rico and her perception of how the American right Trump in particular views Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican people. Because she herself is Puerto Rican, right? Yes, correct. She's, uh, she herself is uh, – I don't know if she's full Puerto Rican. I know her – one of her parents is Puerto Rican. She might not even be 100 percent Puerto Rican but because I mean, she was born in New York City. But Matt Walsh, it's like he's completely oblivious to this. He just sees a leftist who is trying to make a political point, so he decides to counterpunch by raising money to – show that i guess that conservatives are ch charitable or something we're the better people I right guess, which we are the be, better people being we're the bigger man morally does not mean much when you're literally getting your head bashed in with a crowbar by antifa well it's very narcissistic especially for somebody like walsh because he's not in the same position as most of the people that listen to his podcast he's not in the same position as i guarantee you most of the conservatives who donated to that fund a lot of these people are probably retired, living on Social Security, and simply they're good-hearted people who genuinely want to help an elderly lady in need. And they don't care that their her granddaughter hates them. They don't care that her granddaughter is against them politically. They are genuinely good-hearted, many of them Christian people, who just want to help someone in need. And many of them believe in some of the comments on Twitter were bearing this out. A lot of them were genuinely convinced that an act of kindness would soften AOC's heart. Yeah, she's going to love you now. She's going to drop her crusade against wanting to, you know, because, you know, Matt Walsh organized this campaign for her grandma. Yeah, they, they literally believe that this would soften her heart and she would say, oh, thank you so much. I'm so shocked that the people that I attack every single day came out and helped my grandmother out. Thank you so much. I think a lot of them are because they're so naive about the reality of our current American politics, our current American political situation. They actually expected that. They thought that was what was going to happen. That would have worked like 20 years ago. Right, right. They, that, that would work if uh, if AOC was not Puerto Rican, if she was just an American leftist, which is something, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to point out here in a second. But yeah, 20 years ago, if she was just an average – like if this was Crowley, like Joe Crowley, and something like this happened with a relative of his and he blamed Trump for not helping out, conservatives would open up their wallets and they would give to help him out, and he would be very grateful and very thankful for it. But what they don't understand is there isn't just a political divide here. There's an ethnic divide. And you're not going to soften that ethnic divide through the goodness of your great big hat. It just doesn't work that way. But since we're on the topic of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I felt like it would be only be fair if we do a serious look at what she believes, why she believes what she does, and whether or not and, – and let's try to understand why it is – that she and her family would reject this donation because a lot of these people, like I said, they genuinely expected her to accept the, do the donation, be grateful and change, like change her ways. And they're going to be surprised when they get this refunded in their bank account to be like, well, oh, I was trying to help. Why didn't she why didn't she accept the money? They just don't understand. You know, it's you don't it, it's kind of like let, let, let me go back to the World War Two example. We didn't show Christian charity to our enemies in World War Two. No. 
No. We didn't turn the other cheek. Ask the citizens of Dresden if we showed kind of, or at least showed decency to like, you know, leave civilians out of it and only go for the military. Like, no, we bombed civilians too. Because we had to. But, but the thing is, these people who donated to this, they don't understand the stakes. They think this is just like donating to a Democrat so they'll stop putting mean things on Twitter. But you know what's interesting is if whenever Trump's brother had passed away, the, oh, left, yeah. the left was relentless. They had no words of sympathy for him. They mocked None. him. They celebrated that a Trump was dead. When Trump himself got the coronavirus, they were cheering for him to die. Because they understand that he represents a vision for America that they want to die. That's why they're so relentless. That's why they're so cruel. That's why they're so heartless. They want his vision of America to die. Even if they mocked him getting coronavirus, many of them don't literally want him to die, but they do want his vision of America to die. They wanted him out of office and they wanted his political movement crushed. And the people who donated to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's abuela do not understand that the stakes are not, let's win our enemies over with kindness and love. No, it's you crush your enemies, you drive them out of politics, and you make their ideas so unpalatable that no future candidate will dare will dare to advocate for the same policies that AOC advocates. That's the only way you win. And they don't understand this because you've got people like Matt Walsh who don't explain it to them and instead play into their naivete by starting fundraisers for their enemies. Maybe Matt Walsh himself is naive. I don't know. Maybe 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 he himself genuinely thought that AOC was going to I don't think he did. But maybe, maybe he thought just starting it as a joke thinking it would not gain traction and no one would donate. But how how does well, the high skill conflict any kind of clash between you and AOC where AOC is involved? How is that not going to get attention? Exactly. Yeah. But uh yes, let's take a look at AOC. So one of the accusations is that she is a Manchurian candidate, that she is coming in, trying to hide her views, try to pretend like she's palatable and acceptable in the mainstream, but she's actually a just out and out red communist. So let's uh, let's, let's let's listen to her answer that. This is on uh, Seth Meyers' show from back in March of 2019. She said, um, you know, some people are saying she's a Manchurian candidate. Yeah. I don't know, uh, <laughs> which is a super classy thing to do. Um, if you don't know, uh, Mike Huckabee is a famous bass player. Um, did you, are you, uh, just since I have you here, are you a, a Manchurian candidate? I'm not, uh... That's exactly what a Manchurian <laughs> yeah, candidate exactly. would say. That's exactly. Caught you. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, the right believes she is a Manchurian candidate. They believe that she is literally a, uh, you know, a literal communist, a literal Marxist that is going to undermine our system economically, not socially, not ethnically, but economically. That's the big, that's the key. A lot of Republicans are scared to death of her socialism. They believe that she's a Manchurian candidate because of that. But how many Republicans have actually sat down and watched an entire interview with AOC? And I'll be honest, I had never seen an entire interview with AOC before I prepared for this podcast. I'd seen clips. I'd seen, obviously, I'd uh, heard her give little snippets of speeches here and there. But I had never actually watched an entire interview of AOC. And the, I believe the, the attitude on the right toward her is not to take her seriously. She's a punching bag because people see her as a joke. And let's be face, she has a very let's be let's be honest. Let's be face. Let's be honest. She has a very good meme face. I mean, she's very memeable. When she gets very angry, or when she gets really like wide eyed, or when she's yeah, yelling yeah. and her mouth is really big, and she does have these kind of like large people make fun of. They say she has a horse face because she has these really big like buck front teeth <laughs> and like so like they share one. What I said to my friends, I'm like, you can't deny she's 
objectively attractive. Like maybe yes, you she's very she is very attractive. You could argue whether or not that's oh politically attractive. Like in the real world, not so much, but by political standards, she's attractive. Kind of like also like maybe a Tulsi Gabbard. And friends of mine say, "Oh, you're crazy. She's not good looking. Look at that face, that horse face." I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, you can find a bad picture of someone." Where they're giving a weird face and say this is how they look. Trump did that to troll Ted Cruz when he posted a picture of Ted Cruz's wife on Twitter during yeah. the primaries. But, but the thing is, even yeah, even with even with her so-called horse face, I mean, I personally, I find that kind of cute. Like, even, even as weird as <laughs> oh, that is. Oh, good. Wait, this devolved into our uh, personal preferences real fast. Um, but yeah, she, even irrespective of that, okay, one bad picture for like the memes posted by students for Trump. But that doesn't even come close to deconstructing any of what she actually believes or what she says. Right, right. People, and the reason why people focus on these outta- uh, these outtakes and these clips, these uh, these gaffes that she makes, is because it avoids the question of what she actually of what she believes and why she believes it. And it's very easy to just characterize her as a Marxist. If you Google AOC Marxist, you'll find lots of conservatives who have written articles about her Marxism. And one, the Acton Institute is a free market classical liberal think tank. And they put out an, argue, uh, an article arguing that she is a Marxist because she believes in the labor theory of value. But in the same article, they correctly point out that Adam Smith believed in the labor theory of value. David Ricardo believed in the labor theory of value, which is just the theory that that uh, that a good or service derives its value from the labor put in it and not the value that the consumer puts on the good. So if you build a building, that building is only worth the amount of labor and toil that went into building that building. And AOC believes that. But, you know, like, like they point out in the Acton Institute article, Adam Smith and others believe that as well. They were not Marxist. That alone does not make her a Marxist, does not mean that she wants to bring a Marxist revolution to the United States. So, of course, because she calls herself a democratic socialist and because Democrats understand that that is, an, uh, that is a weight around their neck, they, of course, ask her about it. So this video is her on MSNBC with Chuck Todd. And we're speeding it up a little bit just to kind of get through the content as fast as possible while still making it understandable. We're playing it at 1.5 speed here. Uh, the president spent a lot of time on the, using the S word, mm, socialism oh yeah. and socialist. Um, it was a not too subtle, um, I don't know whether it's a dig or a enhancement. I'll, I'll let you decide. I was flattered. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, you have said you are a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, can you be a democratic socialist and a capitalist? Well, I think it depends on your interpretation. So there are some democratic socialists that would say absolutely not. There are other people that are democratic socialists that would say I think it's possible. What are you? I think it's possible. I think. Do you that- say to yourself, I'm, I'm a capitalist, but? I don't say that. Okay. You know, if anything, I would say I'm, I believe in, in a democratic economy, but. Gotcha. But. The butt is there. Okay. So, um, so in some ways, whether it's you're coming from, say, Elizabeth Warren's perspective, where she says, you know, she says things like, I'm a capitalist, but we need to have hard rules for the game. What does the um, private sector do better than you know that the private sector, look, government should stay out of X because yeah. the private sector does that better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of consumer goods mm-hmm. where the private sector works. And by the way, I think it's important to delineate that just because you're in the private sector doesn't, you can be in the private sector and be a democratically socialist business. Worker cooperatives are a perfect example of that. Um, it's not about government takeover. It's about how much do workers have a say in your business? Mm-hmm. Do you have workers on the board? Do workers enjoy a, a, a decent amount of the wealth that they are creating? Or is the majority of these profits going to shareholders while you're paying a worker $15 an hour to live in a New York City apartment? And so that to me is the difference. So this actually, real quick, I, this goes back to a point that I wanted to make after the Seth Meyers video where they said, are you a Manchurian candidate? The idea with a Manchurian candidate is that it's someone who keeps their views hidden. They run and campaign for office on X, and then once elected, they implement Y. You know, they campaign as, a, as you know, I support Republican values, but then secretly I'm a fascist, you know. So in this case, the she, as 
explicitly says earlier in this video with Chuck Todd, I was flattered that the president, they're referring to Trump, called me a socialist. She's open about her views. So by that definition alone, she's not a Manchurian candidate, but she's also, as this video shows, she, and I admittedly had not seen this video before, she's a bit more nuanced than people make her out to be. Yeah, actual socialists actually don't particularly like the fact that she's not one of them. <laughs> like they... Uh, they get offended. She's not far left enough. Yeah, well, yeah, they get offended at the fact that people consider her a socialist when she's not actually interested in collectivizing the entire economy like they would like to do because uh, they, they would like to completely collectivize. Actual democratic socialists would like to collectivize everything. Um, some of them might be fine with the private sector doing like a few consumer goods like like AOC mentioned. But most democratic socialists want to collectivize everything. Have the workers control everything, just straight up Marxism, but have elections. So that's, you know, have a socialist economy, but have elections as long as you keep the socialist economy, which really isn't much different from the way China China is today. You know, you can run for office as long as you're a socialist, that kind of thing. That is not what she is wanting to bring America into. She is a capitalist in the sense that she believes that the private sector should run the economy. She simply wants, and as she mentioned in the video, she supports collectives whereby the workers have an equal share in the profits and yada, yada, yada. And there's all, all kind of different ways you can do that. Wawa actually has uh, some, something similar to this. And like she said, you can actually be a capitalist. You can be a business owner and be a democratic socialist. That's not an oxymoron. Now, again, this is kind of a little bit of a difference in the actual democratic socialists who want to use force and people who believe in doing this in a, in a, in a free market. So like she wants to collectivize workplaces voluntarily, sit down with the owners of businesses, sit down with uh, with the workers and say, hey, can we find a way to allow workers to have a greater stake, like put workers on the board of this company, that kind of thing. That is not Marxism. That That's not that's more of a that's just a mixed economy. So the idea that she's a Marxist is just flat out wrong. She's not interested in collectivizing the, the economy. She doesn't want the government to take over industries. She supports high taxes. She supports lots of regulations. And she, she supports enhanced government-enforced workers' rights, stuff that is clearly on the left, but things that are not Marxist. And so simply calling her a socialist is like calling Bernie a socialist. Bernie, the only thing really that they want to socialize is the healthcare industry. I don't even think AOC and Bernie want to so want to nationalize the banking industry. So a lot of people may ask, OK, is she just an American version of Greta, Greta Thunberg? Is she just a, a radical green? And that is because, what she comes across as. Because that is that was another thing I forgot to mention, too. We talked about the crazy, like really left wing ideas that she has mainstream. The Green New Deal is the big one, obviously playing off the terminology of FDR's New Deal, but saying it's the Green New Deal. Like this is the plan to combat global warming because, again, they actually believe in global warming. They actually think it's a real thing, even though it's not. And this is their big existential threat. This is their ultimate crisis. And again, through her, through her pushing it very hard on social media, it has become a mainstream or kind of mainstream. Some of the Democratic leadership are still kind of against it, but it is definitely something that is being campaigned on as like a major issue for Democrats. It's certainly not one of the things she's proposed that the Democratic Party or some Democratic candidates run from, like defund the police, but it is something that she has directly made a thing. We know what the Green New Deal is because of her. And this is one thing that a lot of leftists in America and Europe like to say is that American leftists, so-called leftists, are actually would actually be centrist in Europe. This is a little bit misleading just because most of the Nordic countries are a little bit more right wing than people give them credit for. Just like, for instance, corporate tax rate, it was always lower there than it was in America. Um, they, it's easier to fire someone there than it is here. It's easier to start a small business in many, uh, many of those countries than it is in many American states like New York. 
But the she's more AOC. If you want to compare her to a European political party, she would be more of a green. Like she would fit into the Green Party in Germany or the Green Party in one of these other countries. And like you said, she kind of has brought this mainstream because for decades, Europe, Western Europe at least, has been hardcore you know, green. They've been all about transitioning from uh, from coal to to green energy all about like you go to Germany it's just completely covered in windmills like you've got windmills everywhere and because of it Germany has actually had to turn to more dirty coal because they can't produce enough electricity through their windmills and uh, solar panels but that's kind of what if you want to classify AOC she's more of a green party candidate within the Democratic Party but I would argue that that's not even her real beat I would argue that she's using the green platform for other ends so, for instance, this was a speech that she gave at a climate conference. This was the C40 conference, the um, the C40 summit of leaders about the climate crisis in 2019. She said, quote, I speak to you as a daughter and a descendant of colonized peoples who have already begun to suffer. She claims that her grandfather died, as I mentioned, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, quote, all because they were living under colonial rule which contributed to lack of conditions and dire recovery. The climate crisis path is not only impacting those who have contributed to our emissions the least, but have already suffered greatly in the global history of inequality, colonization, and imperialism, stacking one injustice upon another. Everything, so her argument is that people in rich colonizing countries, they produce CO2, and the people in poor colonized countries, they bear the brunt because they're not contributing to the world's pollution, but yet they're suffering the worst of it because they live in climates that are being affected the worst. And her own grandfather is a victim of colonization and imperialism. And she said, I am the descendant of colonized peoples. Who is she talking about? She is the descendant. She is actually the descendant of Spanish conquistadors. The original conquerors. Yeah, there was nobody that was, there was no empire that was more brutal since the Roman Empire well, I mean, I guess maybe the, some of the Muslim, I guess uh, the maybe Ottomans. The, the Ottomans, oh, well, even the Ottomans. I mean, the Spanish were to some extent even more brutal in their early days than the Ottomans were. In the 1500s, 1600s, there was no empire in the world that was more brutal than the Spanish Empire. Those were AOC's ancestors. She descended from conquerors. She descended from colonizers. So I don't know what she's talking about when she says, I speak to you as the daughter and a descendant of colonized people and claiming that her grandfather, who is also a descendant of colonized people, suffered because of the imperialists. Well, I'm also pretty sure the whole thing she spouted about global warming and how like, oh, rich countries produce more and the poor countries suffer more. I'm pretty sure that's not how the atmosphere works. I'm pretty sure, you know, if, if America is producing a bunch of smog and pollution, that bad air is going to stay around America. It's not going to float all the way to... Columbia, like that's that's not how that works. But again, she believes this because she says it. Her one of her great abilities too. This is going back off on. This is going back a bit to why she is a threat. She's able to exaggerate her messages to a point that people won't even think to question that. And she goes right along with it, and it reinforces her view, and it reinforces it to her followers who blindly believe everything she says before people even have a chance to question her. And this is kind of comparable to Trump in a way. Trump obviously never really outright lied. He would kind of slightly exaggerate, like, you know, Art of the Deal is the number one best-selling business book of all time. And it's like, okay, maybe some by metrics, by some metrics, that's probably true. By others, yeah, maybe not. But either way, it's a, a little white lie that helps sell himself because he's a businessman. That's what he does. AOC outright lies so much, and with the help of a media that will never, ever question her, she gets away with it. I remember one big example is on January 6th. She, of course, first lied about being in the Capitol when the peaceful protests entered, the peaceful protesters entered. 
She was not in the Capitol building. She was in her office in one of the, uh, like, Longworth or one of those buildings. And this later came out, but she just doubled down and said, oh, it's all the Capitol complex, so I might as well have been in on Capitol Hill that day, like the actual Capitol Dome. And then she, at one point, tweeted, she said, Trump supporters planted bombs all around our offices so mm -hmm. we couldn't leave, which is blatantly false. That, at best, you could argue that's a hyper-exaggeration, a gross hyper-exaggeration of the fact that one pipe bomb was planted at the RNC headquarters and another pipe bomb was planted at the DNC headquarters. We still don't know who planted those still to this day. No information on that. We don't know if any it was any of the peaceful protesters who entered the Capitol. We don't know. But either way, she then took that to say Trump supporters planted bombs all around the Capitol complex, which is obviously not true, but it's such an outrageous lie. You don't even think to try to debunk mm -hmm. it because it's so to us, it's so outrageous. But to her, it's true. She creates this alternate reality for herself, whether it's bombs being planted by Trump supporters or whether it's global warming being real. And she builds her vision and her ideas around that reality she has created for herself. And the new site, Aldea, she, Aldea News, she compared the government's response to Puerto Rico with the government's response uh, to Hurricane Harvey in Texas. And she, it, it says, Ocasio-Cortez, who is the daughter of a Puerto Rican woman from the Bronx, spoke out on Sunday about the reality that citizens on the island are facing due to the negligence of Donald Trump's government, stating that, quote, it's indicative of a dismissive and retrograde point of view of Puerto Rico. First and foremost, there is a systemic issue here, and that is the modern-day colonial re relationship that the United States has with Puerto Rico, end quote. And she pointed out that there was a lot more aid given to Texas than Puerto Rico. That basically, you know, that they, those people got more money than my people got. Remember, she's supposed to be an American representing Americans, and she's basically accusing the government of racism against her people because they gave more aid to Texas in the aftermath of that hurricane than they gave to Puerto Rico. But I would, and, and of course, the and Politico did an investigation, and they found that there was a lot more aid given to uh, Texas than to Puerto Rico. So, quote, nine days after the respective hurricanes, FEMA had approved $141.8 in individual assistance to Harvey victims versus only $6.2 million for Maria victims. But people need to remember people in Texas pay federal income tax. People in Puerto Rico do not pay federal income tax. So it stands to nature that people in Texas would receive more money from the federal government than people in Puerto Rico because people in Puerto Rico do not pay into the federal fund like people in Texas do. But her, her immediate knee-jerk reaction is this is because of colonialism. Puerto Rico shares a colonial status with the United States. Therefore, the United States is, of course, going to treat Puerto Rico differently. But because Puerto Rico is not a state, of course, the American government is going to treat Puerto Rico differently. And this is – but again, you know, this is what, this is what happens when you have a country that elects people to office who are not loyal to the country more than any other place on earth. She is loyal to Puerto Ricans and the people of Puerto Rico, and she has created this fantasy in her mind that she is the descendant of colonized people, of oppressed people, which puts her on the on a, the same comparison scale with, say, Indians who were colonized by the British. But in her mind, she's kind of like – she would be kind of like an Indian in the 1930s before India gained independence. So Puerto Rico still doesn't have independence from America. So Puerto Rico and its people are going to be at a disadvantage because they are the colonized, therefore they are the oppressed. The United States is the colonizer, therefore the oppressor. In her speech to the Democratic National Convention last year, she said, quote, Good evening, bienvenidos, and thank you to everyone here today endeavoring towards a better and more just future for our country and our world, a movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia, and to, and to propose and build reimagined systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. 
Did you catch anything in there that had anything to do with climate change? No. No. So she is, like I said, her policies mirror the Green Party's in Europe, but that's not actually what she's interested in. If you want to know her priorities, she sums them up very nicely. And of course, like you said, the Democratic Party would prefer she just sit down and shut up. But they had to give her, they had to let her speak at the Democratic National Convention because she has such a strong youth following. They see her as a leader of the future, but they only gave her a very, very limited time slot. And of course, there was a big blow up online about this. A lot of people on the left, a lot of DSA members were very, very pissed off that she wasn't given more time to speak. But she laid out the things that she's interested in, and the Green New Deal doesn't show up. Climate change doesn't show up. It's kind of like she, uh, she cites these scientists who claim that we have 12 years to survive or the planet. You know, we only have 12 years. They've been claiming we have 12 years to survive for the last about 25 years now. Yeah, but see, she she claims that she believes that, but yet in her Green New Deal package, she doesn't want to address the most pressing issue of what she claims to be the most pressing first. Like, if I really believe that we had 12 years to go, I would want to solve that issue first. And this is actually in an interview, the interviewer who was, I, don't, I think it might have been on MSNBC, but the interviewer actually asked her, he said, now, wait a minute, now, if we only have 12 years to go, and this was a left-leaning network, he said, if we only have 12 years to go, why are you including universal basic income? Yeah, high minimum wage, union jobs, uh, racial equity, all this other stuff. Why are you including all of this into the package? Shouldn't we take care of the most pressing issue first and then later come back to all that other stuff? And her argument was, well, if you don't address all that other stuff as well, then you're going to have a situation like you do in France where the yellow vests are revolting. And so she's arguing we don't want people to revolt because, uh, you know, if we don't provide people with health care and jobs and education, all that stuff, then they won't like the policies and the tough medicine that you have to take in order to cut out coal or to, <laughs> in order to transfer uh, for, to a green economy. What? But that I, is all so fake. That is like I never even heard that. I mean, I was thinking kind of initially my mind was going to the reporter asking the question because it's like, yeah, why would you want to encourage policies that – you know, keep people alive if the whole idea is more people and overpopulation is what's going to kill us because of all our <laughs> pollution output. But it, yeah, no, that just proves she's so fake. She doesn't believe any of this she for doesn't, a second. No, she doesn't believe any of this. She's using this as a vehicle because she knows that wealthy Democrats who are primarily white are interested in the green plan because they mirror their counterparts in Europe. Most Americans don't care anything about climate change. That's why when Greta came here, people are like, Who? Whereas she was a big, like, I knew about Greta just because I followed the stuff. She was huge in Europe a full year before she ever set foot in America. Most Americans had never heard of her. And she came here, and she was already a big star in Europe because most Americans just don't care about this stuff. And I don't think AOC cares about this stuff either. If you want to know what she cares about, let me reread her very short speech to the DNC. Good evening, and thank you to everyone here endeavoring towards a better and more just future for our country and our world, a movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice— so healing the wounds of past racial injustice, colonization, you know, like colonizing Puerto Rico, misogyny, that's a big thing she wants to take care of, and homophobia, and rebuilding and reimagining systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. She views the United States as xenophobic, as a nation conceived in xenophobia. She views the United States the same way that those Georgetown college students that were interviewed by Campus Reform that we played on our last episode view Memorial Day. They in the view of the United States, they view the United States as a colonizing power, as a bully, as a nation that goes around and conquers poor native brown people and suppresses them and oppresses them. So in other words, her entire, like we said with global warming, her entire worldview is built on nothing but lies. Her entire worldview is based on nothing but lies, but those lies specifically are hatred toward America and hatred toward America's majority demographic. 
So is this just philosophical? Like those students at Georgetown, they were all white. Every single student they interviewed, they were all white. And they had this view. For them, it's philosophical. They don't hate themselves. They have been they have been brainwashed to believe that this in this just like Marxists, Marxists don't hate themselves. They have been brainwashed to believe that it, in this ideology because they believe that it will create a more just and equal society and eventually create a better world. With AOC, though, I don't believe it's just philosophical. I believe it's personal because, remember, she sees her identity as the descendant of oppressed, colonized peoples. This was an interview she gave with The Breakfast Club. She said, quote, I think, first of all, electoral politics is always going to be disappointing to a certain extent. And I think there's a problem where we lean on saviorism a lot because, first of all, it's all part of a larger system. So you can have one great, amazing elected official. They're still in a system that's completely bogged down in the legacies of racism because basically American apartheid with Jim Crow, with the genocide of native people. She doesn't even know what Jim Crow is. They literally equate Jim Crow with slavery itself. Yeah, well, apartheid. Like she's equating that with South Africa's apartheid system. That's not – Jim Crow was very limited. Jim Crow was simply the segregation, uh, the racial segregation on public transportation. That was the extent of Jim Crow. That's what Jim Crow meant. But she doesn't even know what Jim Crow is. So she says with Jim Crow, with the genocide of native people, with the fact that, you know, we've always marginalized the people who have always lived on this land, which are Latinos and descendants of Latinos – who are Native American. She's literally I mean, claiming uh, that Latinos, as in all Latinos, are the descendants of the Native people on this land who are Native American. I mean, I'm pretty sure people descended from the Spaniards would disagree with that. Yes, kind of like AOC. Yeah, kind of like her. If you look at her, she looks Spanish. So check out this clip that, uh, that uh, she gave. This was a speech on immigration. We have to have respect for children. Respect for families, respect for human rights, and respect for the right of human mobility. Because it is a right. It is a right. Because we are standing on native land, and Latino people are descendants of native people, and we cannot be told and criminalized simply for our identity or our status. So Latinos are just Native Americans now? Yes. I, I missed that memo. Yes, and, that, that uh, is what she believes. And also, I just have to point this out, one of the guys standing behind her is a black guy, and I'm just thinking, okay, so the whole, oh, get off their land, this is colonized land, this is a Native land, so does that mean uh, African Americans have to go back too? Because they're technically, technically, like the slaves who came over here from Africa are technically not Native to this land either. Well, so. they, they would argue that because they were forced here, they can stay, but white people need to go. White people need to pack up and go back to Europe. Or they, if they're not going to pack up and go back to Europe, they need to at least be subservient to the native peoples whom their ancestors colonized and conquered. And then you ask her about the indentured slaves, uh, white slaves like Irish and other white slaves who came here against their oh, that's, as that's well. just a white supremacist myth that oh, never oh, happened. Yeah, no, that never happened apparently, even though there's overwhelming documented, ev documented evidence that this happened. But yeah, no, it's oh my goodness. I, I, there's so much in that one video alone that I just I can't even. I mean, first off, I, I don't understand. Have you ever heard the word respect? I, I'm not too familiar with the word respect. Like, it sounds a little bit like respect, but, <laughs> but I, I hear it several times. I'm pretty sure there's a hard A follow. She probably spells that R-E-S-P-A-K-T. That's seriously what I hear. But her, if you take her argument to logical conclusion, what she's saying very openly is that all Latino people are the descendants of Native Americans, and this is Native land. Therefore, every single Latino person in the Western Hemisphere has a racial birthright to move anywhere in the Western Hemisphere they want. So if a Colombian wants to move to Texas— he has a racial birthright to move to Texas, uninterfered with by the American government. If an Argentinian 
which by the way, Argentina is 97% white. If an Argentinian wants to move to the United States because he's Latino, he is allowed to move to the United States. A Mexican, Guatemalan, anyone in Latin America, if they want to move to the United States, they have a racial birthright to this land because they are the descendants of natives and we are living on native land. She also says she has the audacity to say like human mobility is a right as if, you know, the right to move about freely in your hometown is the same as you have the right to illegally enter another country and demand you get free stuff paid for by their taxpayers. But by her logic, this is not a legitimate legal country. This is technically, this country belongs to Latinos because Latinos are the descendants of Native Americans. So if a Native American or the descendant of a Native American who are Latinos decides they want to move into this country, it is cruel and unusual punishment for the United States to tell them they can't come here because this is their land. We are on their land. And the thing that's crazy about this is even even if that were true, let's assume, let's jump into this fantasy world that she lives in. Let's assume that every single Latino is the descendant of a Native American, of an indigenous person who dates back thousands of years on this in this hemisphere. People in Colombia, whose ancestors date back thousands of years, don't have never lived in North America. They didn't live in New York City. They didn't live in the Bronx. It was the tribes who lived in the Bronx. So you could, or even if you take this argument that they have native rights to this land, nobody in those, like the Mayans, they didn't live in New York. But according to her logic, and really all this is, is it's just uh, ethnocentrism. She is a, she is a Puerto Rican ethno-nationalist. She is a Latino, she is Latina ethno-nationalist. And she's using this as a means to project the belief that her people should be given preference. And this is what we saw a lot in the age of nationalism in Europe. A lot of European peoples who were living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they would reach back thousands of years to some obscure myth and claim that their people once ruled over all of this land and this land belongs to their people and they should be given their own country. They should be given all you know, preferential treatment because their ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago lived on this land. Now, whether or not that was true or not, they didn't know. They were just told that and it was really just a myth that was used to gain extra privileges and rights in their day and age. And this is what she's using. So on immigration. She claims that the idea that if an other is coming into the population, it is a white supremacist idea. So the idea that another, that a foreigner is coming into your population, that idea alone is white supremacist. I mean, again, I, I'm sure she'd be quite fascinated to see if some of these Central or Latin American countries themselves have strict immigration policies that you can't just wander in Venezuela as a white. If a white man tries to wander into Venezuela and sneak over their borders, uh, he probably would not be treated too nicely. And but, but again, she would be fine with that because a white man doesn't have any right to be on this land. People in Venezuela do because they're Latinos. It's a win-win situation at this point. At a Capitol Hill panel discussion with Sanders in 2018, Ocasio-Cortez described the transition to renewable energy outlined in the Green New Deal proposal as, quote, the vehicle to truly deliver and establish economic, social, and racial justice in the United States. So it's very obvious that she doesn't, the Green New Deal is not an end in itself. It's simply a means. She said, quote, this is going to be a global issue. Climate change alone is going to drive hundreds of thousands of people to be, change, uh, to be changing and migrating across the world. Climate change is a means. The end goal is for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Latinos to move to the United States, because the more Latinos move to the United States, the more political power her people are going to have in this country, because she does not identify as ethnically American. She identifies as ethnically Latina and ethnically Puerto Rican, which is a problem for those of us who identify as ethnically American, because this woman who is arguably the most powerful member of Congress right now, she's got 12.7 million Twitter followers. No other congressperson even comes close to that. This woman technically wants to conquer the United States 
through the Green New Deal by bringing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people into this country. In fact, when Kamala Harris in Guatemala told the Guatemalans, do not come to the United States, you will be turned back. Uh, AOC came out very strongly against that and criticized her extremely harshly because that goes against everything that AOC stands for. In this article in Newsweek, it says Trump commonly uh, compares undocumented immigrants to an invasion or infestation harming the country, which Ocasio-Cortez describes as, quote, a myth the president is peddling. In quote, research backs her up with economists consistently finding that immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, benefit the economy overall, paying billions of dollars more in taxes than they use in services and creating millions of jobs with their spending. And this is what the news media does whenever, and of course, and then Ocasio-Cortez in that same article said, quote, where migrants go, prosperity follows. So she's arguing that we need more immigrants because it helps the economy overall. And this is what the news media does. They, of course, support unlimited, unfettered migration to the United States. But these two studies that are actually cited in Newsweek, the one claiming that immigrants pay more than they receive, that's only on Social Security. They didn't look at welfare benefits. They only looked at Social Security, which, of course, immigrants pay more into Social Security than they receive in Social Security because they don't receive Social Security until they retire. And most immigrants are young. They haven't retired yet. Why don't we look at those statistics in 50 years if America is still around? That's why they want – that's why the, the news media and, um, and people who support Social Security and the welfare state, that's why they want immigrants in. The second study that they quote is from the Center for American Progress, a very unbiased think tank. Totally not at all a left-wing hack job. Written by Dr. Raul Hinojosa Ojeda. No. Definitely unbiased. Yeah, definitely unbiased. Uh, uh, yeah, not no. at all sympathetic to illegals. No, no, no. Dr. Hinojosa Ojeda is not the least bit sympathetic to Latinos wanting to come and, uh, and overpopulate the United States. But uh, this study actually focuses, actually compares their goals favorably with Ronald Reagan's 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. And they claim that, of course, that immigrant spending will increase the, uh, increase the economy in America and drive wages up. But this article that Center for American Progress presents does not calculate unimpeded immigration. They're basically arguing for amnesty matched with a limit in immigration and a limit in illegal immigration. And, of course, that's not what AOC supports. But because Newsweek, of course, doesn't expect people to actually follow the sources, they're just going to claim, yeah, the data backs this up. Immigrants contribute a lot more to the economy than they take out. Oh, and their enhanced spending creates jobs for Americans. So everyone should support unimpeded immigration, even though the studies don't, don't actually bear that out. So if we really want to get a good idea of what AOC thinks, this is from the Boulder Weekly. It says a couple of weeks ago, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez claimed that climate change is linked to, wait for it, white supremacy. She also claimed that the way we can combat climate change is by honoring indigenous wisdom. Representative Ocasio-Cortez spoke at a rally for Bernie Sanders held during a climate change summit at Drake University in Des Moines. Here's her full quote. The way we inoculate ourselves from continuing to burn up our planet at unsustainable level, triggering feedback loops that we have not even begun to comprehend is by honoring indigenous wisdom and allowing it to guide our climate policy. The way that we preserve our systems is by transitioning to principles of universality. That means I want you clothed. I want you educated. I want you paid a living wage. No ifs, ands, or buts. And what that also means is directly consciously combating white supremacy in the United States of America, end quote. So her whole reason for being in Congress doesn't have anything to do with the Green New Deal, doesn't have anything to do with climate change. Look, she, she's an economics major. She did not major in science. She doesn't understand any of this stuff anymore than the average layperson. She sees the Green New Deal as a great way to build a leftist coalition, coalition that will allow her to decolonize the United States, that will allow her to attack white supremacy. And this is something that the podcaster Tim Poole pointed out a while back. He said he doesn't like AOC. He doesn't respect her just because he feels like she hates Republicans. 
that's not exactly it. AOC obviously has a lot of venom for Republicans, but her main target is native white Americans. It's because she sees native white Americans as the descendants of colonizers and oppressors. She sees the United States as a force of evil in the world because it has been run by colonizers and oppressors. And the only way to mitigate that evil is to create policies like the Green New Deal that will spark massive immigration that will overwhelm the majority demographic in this country. Her, she is not a Marxist. She is not a socialist. She is an ethno-nationalist. She's an ethno-nationalist for her people, for her Latino people, for her Puerto Rican people. And it bears it out in the fact that her number one issue is repairing the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, homophobia, all the things that the cruel white colonizers brought to this land of peaceful, harmonious native peoples. And look, you can't. And the reason why the right doesn't delve too deeply into what she believes and why she believes it. I mean, Tucker Carlson, actually, he did a segment on this, pointing out the fact that she is a racist. Yeah, he specifically called her a racist and the fact that she blames white people for all the ills in the world. The reason why the mainstream right prefers to focus on her title of socialism is because that's not racial. It's not it's not uh, contra. It's not it ties into longstanding generational concerns of like communism in the Cold War, not the current new monster we now face, which is racism against white Americans. Yes, because look, the, the reality is every people on Earth wants to have their own country. And if you have a group of people in the United States that is not assimilated into the American culture and they do not embrace Americans as their people, they're going to be very unhappy and very dissatisfied and they're going to find an identity they're going to reach back in their past somewhere and they're going to grab an identity. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous to the country. It's dangerous to those of us who actually love America and feel like America. We love America not because it's inherently superior to other countries, but we love it because it's our home. Our ancestors moved to this country, assimilated, became American citizens, and we don't identify as anything but American. Uh, but with, with her, it's all about it's all about this decolonization thing. It's all about it, she wants to attack the colonialism and the imperialism, which eventually became the United States, which is why, as we mentioned in the last episode, so many Americans have been brainwashed to hate Memorial Day because they've been brainwashed to believe that the United States is a white supremacist country. And the only way to overcome that is to bring in as many non-white people as fast as is humanly possible and turn them into voters so they can out, uh, outvote the white majority. And that is, it would be so easy for Fox News to talk about this aspect of AOC, but instead they just go for the really cheap talking points, you know, because it's easier to bash her as a communist or a socialist, even though what she really is and what she really stands for is far more dangerous and more insidious. Which is why when President Trump over and over again said, we will never be a socialist country, AOC just grinned. She just laughed because... She doesn't advocate for socialism. She doesn't want the United States to become a socialist country. That's not what she advocates for. So the fact that he is going after socialism and Republicans are going after her for socialism, she's laughing all the way to the bank because she understands that the diversion that she's created through right. the term, they're not, the title of socialism. They're not aware of the real threat. Yeah, it's, it's causing them to focus all of their attention on the threat of socialism when she's not a socialist. She's not interested in taking over your business. She wants, you, she wants to tax your business and give the money to – non-white people but and she, she wants to take to, she certainly wants again like we said before she and bernie and others they do want to socialize health care they do want to completely get rid yes, of private yes, health yes. insurance that's one area in which not to say she's not at all a socialist she has no socialist views she absolutely does but she's not an across she doesn't she doesn't want you know collective farming in yeah the she's United not States. an like out and out marxist no, no. 
But that is why we are here at The Right Take. We are here to give you the takes that you will not hear anywhere else, that you will not hear in the mainstream media or even mainstream conservative media. So that is why we ask that you continue to follow us at all of our various social media accounts and podcast platforms where we are available. You can see the full list at our website, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you want to support our show, then you can also go to righttakepodcast.com slash support. And if you want to contact us, if you want to suggest topics for episodes or potential guests we may have on, we are in fact going to have our first few guests on the show in the coming weeks. So get ready for that, guys. righttakepodcast.com slash contact. We'll talk to you next week, guys.